Hi everyone, and welcome to the Las Luces Podcast. My name is Crystal Maldonado, and I am the author of Fat Chance Charlie Vega. Today, I'm joined by Lakin Zaya Kemp, Johnny Garzavia, Terry Custosus Jennings, and today, on this episode of Debut Diaries, the Middle Grade and YA Edition, we'll be talking about submissions, editors, and the acquisitions process. Lakin, can you start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your book? Yes, thank you. So my name is Lakin, and I'm a kidlit author living in Austin, Texas. My debut novel, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, is set to debut this year in just a couple of months on April 6th. And uh, it's comped with I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which is a book that I really loved when it first came out and kind of meets emergency contact in this stunning story of first love, familial expectations, the power of food, and finding where you belong. As an aspiring pastry chef, Penelope Prado has always dreamed of opening her own pasteleria next to her father's restaurant, nachos tacos, but her mom and dad have very different plans, leaving Penn to choose between disappointing her traditional Mexican-American parents or following her own path. When she confesses a secret that she's been keeping, her world is set into a tailspin. But then she meets a cute new hire at Nachos who sees through her hard exterior and asks the questions she's been too afraid to ask herself. Xander Amaro has been searching for home since he was a little boy. For him, a job at Nachos is an opportunity for just that, a chance at a normal life to settle in at his abuelos and to find the father who left him behind. But when both the restaurant and Xander's immigrant status are threatened, he will do whatever it takes to protect his newfound family and himself. Together, Penn and Xander must navigate first love and discovering where they belong, both within their families and their fiercely loyal Chicanx community in order to save the place they all call home. Fantastic. How about you, Terry? Can you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Terry Capasus Jennings, and uh, I was born in Cuba, and I now live in Western Virginia. And my book is, I have a chapter book series coming out, and the name of the series is definitely Dominguita, and the name of the first book is The Night of the Cape. And it was comped to uh, Judy Moody uh, and to Netflix one day at a time. The book is about Dominguita, who is a girl, third grader, Cuban-American, who loves to read, uh, especially the books in Spanish that Abuela gave to her just before she moved away. And they were classics that they read um, before bedtime. But now that Abuela has had to go, because she's getting a little bit forgetful, you know? Dominguita dismisses her terribly, so she's decided to read all those books that Abuela read with her. And she starts with Don Quixote. But now the class bully tells her that, hey, you only read because nobody likes you. And she says, me? No, I'm reading because I'm studying to be a knight. Well, of course, girls can't be knights. Well, that's what the book is all about. Dominguita shows him that definitely she can be a knight. Uh, the book is from Simon & Schuster and it comes out on March the 2nd, along with the second book, Captain Dom's Treasure, and then two others, uh, All for One and Sherlock Dom in August or September. Not sure which one yet. Yay! Johnny? Yeah, so my debut young adult novel is titled 1500 Miles from the Sun, and it's Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda meets One Day at a Time, so a similar comp to Terry's. 
And um, it's about Julian Luna, who just wants to graduate, get into UCLA, and have a chance to move away from Corpus Christi, Texas, and all the suffocating expectations of others that have forced him into an inauthentic life. But then in one reckless moment, with one impulsive tweet, his plans for a low-key nine months are thrown literally out the closet. And the downside, the whole world knows, and Jules has to prepare for rejection. But the upside, Jules now has the opportunity to be his real self. Then Matt, a cute, empathetic Twitter crush from Los Angeles, slides into Jules' DMs, and Jules can tell him anything. Matt makes the world seem, un seem conquerable. But when Jules' fears about coming out come true, the person he needs most is 1,500 miles away, and Jules has to face them alone. So Jules accidentally propelled himself into the life he's always dreamed of, and now that he's in control of it, what he does next is up to him. And that comes out June 8th uh, this year. Awesome. Thank you so much. And like I mentioned, I am Crystal Maldonado, author of Fat Chance Charlie Vega. Um, so Charlie Vega is a lot of things. She's smart, funny, artistic, ambitious, and fat. People sometimes have problems with that last one, especially her mom. So Charlie wants to have this good relationship with her body, but it's really hard and her mom has this idea that she can get Charlie to lose weight if she just drinks some, some weight loss shakes. And so she feels the pressure of the world kind of around her telling her that she needs to be smaller. And then she has this beautiful best friend um, who is also thin and it's hard not to be jealous of her, you know? So they kind of <laughs> have this wonderful relationship, but Charlie secretly wishes she were more like her best friend, Amelia. But then everything sort of changes when this guy named Brian, the first worthwhile guy to notice her, notices her. And he asks her out. And that seems like her dream come true until she finds out that he asked out Amelia first. So <laughs> is Charlie actually his second choice? What does this mean? And why is everything kind of on fire now? So that is Fat Chance Charlie Vega, and that comes out February 2nd, 2021. So thanks everybody for introducing yourselves and telling us all about your amazing book. So let's just jump in and start talking about this. So have you ever presented a project to your agent that didn't take out on sub? Yes. So <laughs> very, <laughs> the very first picture book that I wrote we did not end up taking out on sub and it was my first attempt and it was not very good. <laughs> and my agent very lovingly nudged me to try again, but she actually gave me some really great advice before I got started. And she told me to think about a specific experience or memory and to focus on that instead of focusing on like a more general topic or theme. And so with that advice, I wrote two new picture books and those we did end up submitting and selling this past summer. But yeah, it was, I'm really grateful that she was part of that collaboration process with me and that she was able to say, no, this is not going out <laughs> because it's not ready. It's, it's not indicative of what I know you can do in this age category. And instead, you know, gave me some advice, gave me another chance to try at it. And that attempt ended up being much more successful because of that. I had the same experience uh, that Lakin did. My agent did not take a, a picture book out on submission. It was a little bit different idea. She did not think that that particular concept would sell. So uh, we kicked it around several rounds, you know, several times trying to make it work and we never could. I have not so far, no, and I'm just kind of like like frivolously like knocking on wood about that. 
I, I've only written like the one book that got me my agent. So like, not yet, but also I have written another book since then. And I think like what I found helpful, it's not on sub yet, but like when I was like really getting into drafting and like really starting to obsess about the idea, I decided to write a synopsis and send it to my agent and just be like, hey, like Loki, do you like this? Is this something that you think you would want to see? Like you think is sellable? Please validate me. Let me know if I can continue and validate me. They did. And they're just like, yeah, keep writing. So I think I thought that was a really good practice. I'm probably going to keep on doing that. Maybe not. I don't know. But like that helped me realize, okay, this is something that I'm not just going to spend time writing on, even though I loved writing the story and just realize that it's not something marketable. Yeah, that's fair. Like, so Fat Chance Charlie Vega was like the first thing I tried to make into something. So I feel like very fortunate for that. Um, and I'm just kind of waiting for, I know eventually there's going to be a, a no thank you. We would like you to keep that one to yourself and try something else. So I'm sure it will be in the future. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that they were picture books and you kind of feel like maybe there wasn't that much investment, you know, because I've had novels that my agent hasn't quite liked but we have worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. Personally speaking, like I just felt like really fearful because like I knew that my agent was very forward about like, oh, if you want to write like brown stories and Chica Neck stories, like here for it, do it. If you want to write queer stories, like please do it. But then I, I felt like what I wrote for my first book and then what my second book was is very much going a hundred miles an hour now on like the Chica Neck stuff and like a thousand miles an hour on the queer stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going too far now. I don't know if this is like too niche now. And so that was definitely a fear. And I was like, I need, I need someone who knows the industry to tell me, am I going too far? Even though like looking back on it, it's probably kind of a stupid question, but like, you know, like it's something we all fear probably, like especially as BIPOC writers. Totally. So let's talk a little bit just about how you guys and your agent sort of came up with your submission list and, you know, how involved in the process were you? What criteria did you use to evaluate editors? How did you select who to submit to? All that fun stuff. So I was completely clueless about the submission process because it's sort of the part of the publication process that people talk about the least. It's always shrouded in a lot of secrecy. So I didn't come to the situation knowing a lot about editors. I didn't know any of them by name. I didn't even know a lot about the different houses and different imprints that you could submit to. So my agent is really the one who came up with the list and she had them broken up into smaller groups by house and imprint. So just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know the difference, the house is the overarching publishing company. So it's like the big umbrella and then an imprint is more like a brand. So they're the smaller segments of the company that are focused on publishing certain things. Like for example, I'm with Little Brown Young Readers, which is nested under Little Brown, which is nested under Hachette Book Group. So when it comes to submission, there are some houses where you can only submit to one imprint at a time and there are other houses where you can submit to multiple imprints and that was reflected in that first round of editors we submitted to. So at the time we just talked a little bit about who they were and the publishing houses they were at, but I didn't really do any tweaking to the list. The only thing that was really important to me was to submit to editors of color and editors specifically looking for Latinx stories. 
And I know my agent already had those things in mind as well. And when I looked up the different editors on Publishers Marketplace, that was sometimes reflected in the recent acquisitions that they'd made. So that's a great resource. I know we've mentioned on the podcast before, but I think it's especially helpful during submission because you can learn so much about an editor as well as the publishing house where they work by looking at what they recently acquired and also getting a sense of how much they paid for those titles. You also want to look at how many of the books they acquired really broke out, how many had adaptations, how many have you actually heard of? All of these things can be an indication of how much marketing support gets thrown behind their books and whether you might be able to expect similar treatment. I, uh, my agent did all of that and I was probably even more clueless than Lakin was. I, I didn't even try to, to weigh in. Later on, as, we, as I know that we have things coming, seeing Publishers Weekly and maybe going to conferences, I might nudge my agent and say, hey, I, I heard of this person. Uh, would you consider it? But she makes all the decisions. So I'm, and I'm happy with that. That works fine. I feel so accepted here because I too like had minimal to no involvement whatsoever. I did have like a few editors interact or like, like my tweets from like DV Pit and Pitmad, but otherwise I let my agent coordinate all of that. I really didn't ask no questions. I just kind of let it be uh, and uh, trusted the process and trusted that they knew what they were doing. Yeah, I think that it's important that this is their business and they know what they're they know what they're doing. So far be it for me to try to tell them. Yeah, I also I was such like a newbie coming into this. I had no idea what I was doing. I did like a couple of Google searches. Like I like, should have done more research. So like not to brag, but I'm coming into this as probably like the least knowledgeable of all of us so thank you very much but so I really had no idea like about the process at all and was I feel like super fortunate to find an agent who understood what I was trying to do with the book and understood like how important all of the parts of Charlie Vega's identity was to the story and how important my identity is as an author and so she really took the lead on everything and when we had like our early phone calls, I just felt like she got it so instantly that I was like, if you told me to like jump off a bridge right now and this is what would help me, <laughs> I think I would. Like she just knew exactly what she was talking about. She was so well-versed and knowledgeable and had worked with a couple of authors that like I also was admired or was like impressed with the things that they had done. So I was happy to let her take all of that on and just like kind of wash my hands of it and say, you'll loop me in and you'll keep me posted. And that sounds great. So that was my sort of perspective on it. So let's talk about editors. So how many editors were approached in that first round? And did you end up doing multiple rounds? And how did the group of editors sort of change between each round? I searched high and low for the answer to this in old emails and I couldn't find it because I think I completely deleted everything related to submission because I didn't want to go back and look at it. Not that it was a negative experience, just it's over and done with. Um, time to move on. But just based on what I can remember, I think it was around 20 and it might've even been less than that. 
but I ended up getting offers from that first round of editors. So we didn't have the need to do multiple rounds, but I do know that the first round is usually like the A team. And like those editors are your pie in the sky dream people to work with. And if none of those editors bite, that's when you move on to the second string. And you know, I really hope this sports analogy like isn't coming across as rude. <laughs> trying to be. I just think it simplifies things, especially for people who don't know a lot about the submission process. But because you never want editors to know if they're your first round or second round, I think that's why authors don't talk about submission that much. And definitely not when they're actually out on sub because you just never want an acquiring editor, especially one who makes an offer, to think that they weren't your first choice. So that's a big reason why there's so much secrecy about this part of the process. I, I like the sports analogy. I had put down that it's like when you're applying to college, that you have some reach schools and you have some reach editors. I think in the first book that we pitched, it was 12, 12 editors. And there was a second one. And we actually took that particular book and totally reworked it because it did not sell. But in the other, the other two, three submissions, it was all in the, in the first round. And I think uh, my agent normally just does around 12. I have absolutely nothing of value to add to this. I'm really glad that like y'all had some really smart answers. I had no idea. I don't know how many we submitted to. I was sitting here trying to think of like a gay way to do a sports analogy. Like <laughs> we want to send, we want to send them to like our, our Chromatica and Born This Way editors before we do like our Joanne editors. Like, I don't know. But oh. yeah, like... <laughs> I, I honestly, I have like dot, 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 like on my answer for this because there was, there was nothing for me to add to this question. <laughs> Fair enough. So I feel like I will be totally blunt and say like, we definitely had two rounds. I was majorly rejected that first round. We, and I went back in my old emails to sort of see and get numbers. So we went to 15 different editors in the first round, all rejected. And then the second round, we went to 11 different folks, and that was when we got an offer from there. And I also think this sort of plays well into me just not knowing anything at the time. So, like, I didn't take any rejection personally at all. Like, I expected that it would take a long time before we found anybody who would be interested in the book. I wasn't even convinced that anybody would take the book so like every time we got a rejection and it was like a nice rejection where it was like oh the writing is really good but we have something similar or whatever whatever the reasoning was I was like oh my god they read it and they thought the writing was good this is wonderful and my agent Tamar was so encouraging the whole time and was like we're gonna find somebody like and look at all this nice stuff they had to say so like don't get discouraged we're gonna we're gonna get this we're gonna find a home for this and it's gonna be the right home so that's sort of what my experience was and I guess I am kind of glad I was like naive about it because I was just like this is all so cool <laughs> so let's talk about boundaries so when you are going on sub you can sort of like with your agent figure out what you want to know and what you don't want to know. So what kind of boundaries did you set while you were on sub? Like, did you want to see every response? Did you only want to see positive feedback? So I only wanted to see positive feedback or to be notified when there was some kind of movement with the manuscript. 
meaning it was moving to the next stage of the process at a particular house. I was actively drafting something new at the time, and I just, first of all, I just did not want any bad vibes or any criticisms to sort of needle their way inside and start messing with my head when I was working on something new. So I did set that specific boundary to only see positive feedback, and it usually came in a weekly email from my agent, unless she was letting me know that the manuscript had made it through to the next round at a particular house, and then that information she would let me know as it was happening. But otherwise, we just had a few regular check-ins, and anything negative, she kept very far away from me. I didn't want to know either, and I think I think we both agreed that that was the best uh, the best way to go. Uh, and I do hear right away when there is some movement, when there's some possible offer or it's it's going to acquisitions. But really, then even knowing when you when it goes to acquisitions, sometimes you think, golly, Moses, hey, it, it's going to acquisitions tomorrow. And then you're all nervous and then you don't hear for a month and then you go, oh, so what happened? And so really, to, to me, only good news is the best. So same, and I think like, you know, I, I feel like my answers are kind of redundant at this point, but like, I just wanted to know as little as possible. Like personally speaking, I very easily get into my head and I, my agent did send me one because this editor was like super constructive and incredibly kind. And they were just like, hey, like here's, here's like one maybe you should look at. But I was immediately like, wow, they took my idea and they made it into this whole other thing and it's so good and like why didn't i think of that now i'm stuck with what i wrote when i could have written that and like that was the thing i thought i was just thinking about for like the entire day and i could not get it out of my head so i knew from the get-go it was just going to be healthier to see no feedback at all unless it was a yes maybe one day i'll ask about it i'll like ask it to the list and who said yes and who said no but that day is not approaching anytime soon so I am the only masochist here that was like, yes, send me everything. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely is what you are. <laughs> so I guess I honestly feel like this is part of just, I wanted to like know everything, but also nothing about the process. And I was like, yeah, sure. Sounds good. Send me stuff that like won't hurt my feelings. But also I kind of wanted to know because I thought maybe in my head, I was like, oh, this will help me if I need to revise or like a new project or whatever, this information would be useful. But now that I've been through the process, <laughs> I feel like I wouldn't do it the same again. I would say only send me the positives um, because like looking back, I don't really think I got anything valuable out of it, but I I mean, there were nice comments and it was great or whatever, but I know that now as I'm trying to like hype my own book up, I think about some of the things that people said about the book that they didn't like. Like I got the comment that it was too quiet very often. And so now I think when I get in my head, I'm like, no one's even going to like this book anyway. It's too quiet and like nothing happens in it and whatever. So that would be a lesson for all of you listening <laughs> that maybe you don't want to see the rejections. But I will say like overall, it was, it's not like anybody got back to me and was like, you should quit writing. It was, you know, they were nice, soft rejections. So yeah, I probably wouldn't do the same thing going forward, but um, I guess I'm glad I did it then. <laughs> no, but like, even to your point, I feel like next time I'm probably going to do it different. Like, 
being that in the dark about it was just very comforting in a way, but also like when anyone asked about how it's going or like who is reading it right now or who got it, who got the book sent to them, I was like, I don't know. Like, I and they're like, you didn't ask your agent? I'm like, no, like, that's not anything I have any interest in. But like also I see a lot of benefits of it, just seeing what they're saying and also getting to know who agents are at what houses. That's probably going to help like in the future as your career goes forward, especially if you sign to a smaller house at first, but also did go into submission with larger houses and just seeing what they were looking for, because I'm sure what larger houses are looking for are very different and very just like niche and aesthetic towards that season or specific year than what maybe like a small imprint or house is looking for. So like there's, there's a lot of benefits to knowing what's happening too. One thing I would add though, that I think is specific to listeners of this podcast is that as BIPOC creators or marginalized creators, you also want to be really careful because a lot of those rejections that start coming in might contain some microaggressions, some implicit bias, or even out and out racism that might be harmful to you. And those are things that I personally didn't want to read. And so that's something else to keep in mind if you're thinking about how you might set boundaries during this process. Hopefully you have an agent who would be able to identify those things before they make it into your inbox. But for example, I'm starting to get reviews for my debut novel and one that came in recently. The tone was overall positive, but some of the language used is not inherently positive and something that our community no longer uses. But that's something that I don't think my agent or editor were really aware of to the same degree that I am. And so it wasn't caught before it was sent to me. And so there's always the possibility of that, you know, especially if you have a, a white agent, because agents are predominantly white, editors are predominantly white, and that's the lens through which they're both giving and reading feedback. So you might just keep that in mind too. So let's talk a little bit about how long you were out on sub and how did you all sort of stay sane during this time? Yeah, so I actually went back and looked at my emails because I was actually kind of curious about it now too. And I was on submission for almost exactly three weeks. I went on submission January 15th, 2020 and got uh, my phone call from, I guess I'm, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm counting as like submission. Like when I got that phone call, I knew that like an offer was coming. So like, that's the end, I, guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in that, in that like assumption, but I'm gonna say three weeks cause that sounds uh, pretty cool. And so, yeah. And then like beginning of February is when I got like that phone call and things started happening. And it felt a lot longer than three weeks at the time. Like it just felt like every single day was going on for forever. And every single day I didn't hear anything was just like, wow, not everyone hates me and no one wants my book. But like to keep myself from thinking those thoughts, I really just dove deep into my second book. That was when let my agent know. I was just like, hey, digressing from the book we're trying to make money off of right now. Like here's this book I'm writing can I keep writing it? And they're like, yes. And it's like, great, because this is the only way I'm going to stay sane right now. That's really what I did. Just anytime I needed a distraction, I would just write the second book because that's really all we can do. I had a book that was on submission for almost, almost a year. And I, you know, I just try not to think about it. You know, it's gone and, and it's done and I'm working, I'm working on the other stuff on, on my other manuscripts, like Johnny said, so that you can keep saying, I've had books that have sold fairly quickly. You really can't tell because I thought that that particular book that took almost a year, I thought that that book, it was such a wonderful topic. I thought that book would sell very quickly and it didn't. So it's very subjective and, um, and you do need to keep working. That's the only salvation. 
So mine is similar to Johnny's. I was only out on sub for about a month. So it was very fast. And a big reason for that, I think, was the excitement around DB Pit. I think the one I that, that I participated in was in April, because I think my, I got my agent in May, and then we sold the book in June. So each step in that process took about a month. But I, I was a teacher at the time. The school year had just ended, and I moved straight into teaching summer school. So I didn't have a lot of downtime to just sit and refresh my email, which I'm so grateful for. So luckily I didn't have to, you know, suffer like a lot of people do going out on sub for, you know, a year, two years. Usually that process is a really long one. And so that's what I had mentally prepared for. So the fact that it was so fast was really a surprise. So again, I'm going to say with me knowing nothing about this, I feel like was my saving grace because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how long the book process really took. And so I had zero expectations about what this whole thing would look like. And so I was working full-time at the time. Well, I still am. So I had my full-time job and I was basically convinced I wasn't going to sell the book anyway. So I feel like that really helped me because I just thought, well, I, I tried and we're trying and we'll see what happens. And however long it takes, that's how long it takes. And I kept myself busy just by focusing on work and like seeing friends and things like that. So I, we went out on sub in 2019, the start of 2019, January. And then I heard back in April. So a couple of months later, so like three to four months later, and I felt like that was great. Like (laughs) I, I wasn't in agony the whole time. I just was excited that we heard back from somebody eventually. Um, and that was sort of how I looked at it. So I guess that worked out well (laughs) in the sense that I just had no expectations. How long did it take to get your offer after the editor expressed interest? Was it weeks? Was it months? Like, let's talk a little bit about that. I got my um, initial summary from one of them, the first one, only a a couple weeks after I got the offer at the beginning or like the phone call at the beginning of the month. And then that like deal summary came at the end of the month. So yeah, just like a couple of weeks. I had uh, one picture book that the editor expressed interest on the day that it uh, that it was subbed and made an offer two weeks later. But then the book that was out on submission for a long time, it went to acquisitions on September 10th and we didn't hear until I think right about Thanksgiving. So it, it all varies. So like I mentioned before, it was very fast. I think in terms of how long it took people to read, most editors were reading within the first two to three weeks. And a big part of that was, like I mentioned before as well, DB Pit and all the excitement around that. But then the process started moving even faster because I received more than one preemptive offer, and which we'll talk about a little more in another question. So I got more than one preemptive offer. And then the editors who made that offer just so happened to be at a conference where my agent was also in attendance. So they were actually able to speak in person and talk things out, which, you know, usually would have, they would have been talking about via email. So that also expedited things a lot. So for me, I basically got an email. I went back and looked, I got an email on April 30th that my, from my agent saying, you have a deal. Let's set up a call on May 1st. I had a like, so the next day I had a getting to know you call with my editor And then May 22nd, which is my birthday, I got an email from my publisher with like 
first edit letter and all that. So it sort of happened fast. <laughs> like it just sort of like all of a sudden it was like, you have a deal. Let, do you want to go with it? Let's do this. And so we went from like a couple of months of just like waiting and trying to see what was going to happen to all of a sudden here's like a whirlwind of things that are all going to sort of happen at the exact same time, which was really exciting. So let's talk about uh, preempt. So was your offer a preempt and did your books go to auction and what did that whole experience look like? I did go to auction. My book went to auction. Um, I had two different houses and publishers involved and it was just, I mean, it was stressful and exciting and honestly I kind of had very little idea of what was actually going on, but I knew things were just happening very quickly. And it was a lot of back and forth with my agent. And, you know, at the time, just having more than one publisher interested enough in my book to give me money was kind of overwhelming. But like, it was, it was cool. I was like, you know, I, I can't think of any other way besides exciting to have, you know, again, multiple people interested in, in your book, especially one that you've just been trying to like gradually build confidence in. That was a really, um, a really neat thing. I did have an offer that was a preempt. Uh, first, my we had gotten interest from one from one editor, uh, from one publishing house, and then when my agent reached out to all the other people that she had made a submission, she heard from one that said, "Oh no, we were just about to make an offer, and we will make it preemptive." And that that was exciting. I mean, it it's exciting, but it was very quick, and it was a good offer, and very happy, very quick. So I had more than one preemptive offer, like I mentioned before, which is kind of funny because the purpose of a preempt is to avoid having to compete with other houses that also want to acquire the book. So basically the editor makes an offer that they think is good enough to be immediately accepted, good enough to completely take your book off the table. But if you do accept, like that's it. And you may never know if you could have gotten more, if you waited to hear from other houses or if the book had gone to auction. So the, um, the houses that offered the preempts, their strategy was to avoid competition, but that sort of ended up happening anyway. But I think what was most interesting about it and most eye-opening was just to see the different value that different editors placed on the work. And that definitely played a big part in my ultimate decision. Can I just say like TBH, thanks for going into what preempt means because I honestly had no idea what that was. That wasn't me, but like I I, I had no idea what preempt was. Um, like kind of just like Kool-Aid manned my way into publishing and only know my own experiences, but like that's, that's super cool. Oh my God. Yeah. And I don't know if Crystal, if your answer is going to go into this more, but we could also talk about what an auction is and what different types of auctions look like. My answer was honestly going to be, I have no experience with this, so I have nothing to add. So, <laughs> but if we want to talk about auction and what that's like, I mean, I have, I don't have it. I don't know. So I know there me. were like two kinds. <laughs> I don't remember the difference. Mine was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> one of the two kinds. One of the two yeah. kinds. Like, my agent had gotten that first offer and she was making the rounds. She already knew who was left, ended up with Simon and Schuster. And she figured that Simon and Schuster was of the ones that were left that she knew about, they, they would be the best. So we took it. Um, I think that on, uh, on auctions, if we wanted to talk about that, maybe there's some in where they set a date and they said, you have until such and such a date to read the book. And it's not a faraway date. It's like two, three days. 
you have until such and such a date to read a book and send me a, um, an offer. Yeah, so I think the two different kinds that Johnny's thinking of, which are kind of the only two different kinds that I'm aware of also, are either there are rounds or there are not. So once an agent starts to notice that your book is getting a lot of interest, maybe you've already gotten an offer, they're going to go back to all the editors who currently have your book and they're going to let them know, we have an offer. If you would like to get in on this, I'm going to set an auction date and I need an offer from you by this date. And they can either say, we want your best and final offer on this date because we don't want to do rounds. Or they might say, just give me an offer by this date. Once you have all of the offers, your agent will take a look at them and then decide if they want to do another round. If they think that they could possibly get some more money or get better terms for you by making the houses submit another offer, then they could do that. And so obviously publishers like to avoid auctions because it's going to drive the price up and make things more competitive. And you might start getting into the weeds a little bit in terms of contracts and what kinds of things houses are promising in terms of marketing. And if they're, if it's that competitive, then it might come down to some of those small things. So they don't want to participate in an auction. And that's why they might make a preemptive offer and say, you're going to take this now, or we're not going to work together. This is our best and final offer. We're not going to an auction. And so sometimes that's, that's what will happen. And I've never participated in an auction. This is just like based on what I've learned from the KidLit community online, listening to other podcasts like this one that have to do with publishing. And so that's where I get most of my industry knowledge from. Of course, my agent is there to answer any questions that I might have. But when I was out on submission, we did talk about auctions a little bit because that was seeming like a possibility because there was interest from more than one editor. But then of course, once I got the preemptive offers that kind of put a squash on the auction happening and I had to go with one of those. What did you ask your editors in your phone calls with them and what do you wish you would have asked? I asked for what the vision of my for my book was and I think from there you start you know you you start talking and what I wish that I had asked after the first time what I wish that I had asked is more what do you what will you do to help me promote the book? And I think those are the those were the two questions that that helped me make the decision. So my phone call, like to be completely honest, was was not it. Like absolutely not it. Like at least grading myself, I did terribly. I was nervous. I I think I mentioned it like on the first debut diaries episode, but I have like telephone anxiety. I don't like phone calls. So like my agent was the one who my agent was on the call too, and they really just carried the team in that one. I was kind of freezing every time. They asked if I had any questions, the, the editor, I was like, no, I don't think so. And then they'd be like, no, actually we do. Like, thankfully they were there to ask all the questions that like I should have, things about the pros and cons of working with them specifically, like within each house. And they wanted to change the title, the one I ended up going with. And so I, in addition to being anxious, I was feeling very petty about that during the entire call, you know, and my agent made sure to ask about like the editorial process and what changes that the publisher was seeing as necessary to the book. But I think like, especially from a young adult author perspective, what's just as necessary in my belief to the questions is being able to talk about yourself. They, the very first thing was like, let me get to know you, like tell me about yourself. And I was like, I have been born. I, I did not know how to talk about myself. They were like telling me all of these things that they loved about my book. And I was just like, thank you. 
and then just like four seconds of silence, unsure about the way I should expand myself on that sort of thing. My agent like texted me after and they were just like, you know what, like, like they need to love you as much as they love those characters. Like that's important. Because again, like as a YA author, we're, we're kind of a brand. We're a brand, we're an aesthetic, we have to be marketable. That's a huge selling deal, I think, to lots of publishers is like, can we get you to conferences? Can you talk about yourself? Can you answer questions in front of another person and teenagers? Like, these are valuable resources in addition to your words that you write. So what I did was like, I, I noted like a bunch of things down from my next call. Like, okay, these are things that you need to do. Like screw imposter syndrome, like one, and then like talk about yourself. I wrote down all the things I can say about myself. And it was like, if they compliment this specific thing about the book, here is what you can say to that. If they say, I love this part, here's what you can say to that. Instead of just being like, thank you and making it awkward for everyone. And, and really it's just about faking it until you make it. If you're gonna, if you're awkward, like that's okay. Just fake it until you make it and just make them want you and what you're selling, which is yourself as much as your book. I think fake it till you make it is such good advice for like YA authors especially because I feel like if you are a writer, then you probably by nature are maybe on the shyer side or you're like not, you're like introverted or not always used to talking about yourself. So you really just have to pretend. And then once you pretend enough, it becomes a little bit easier to pretend. And then eventually it's like not as much pretending. I was also really, really nervous. And like Johnny mentioned, we've bonded before on the podcast over how some of us hate phone calls because they just create a lot of anxiety for us. So that in and of itself was really nerve wracking. But then on top of it, you're basically participating in a two-way interview. And while you are trying to be personable and sound really smart, you're also wanting to make sure that you do your due diligence and interview the editor just as thoroughly as they're interviewing you. So that's the goal. But did I actually do a good job of that? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, ultimately I got the information I needed to make my decision, but because I'd never gone through, for example, the revisions process with an editor before, because I had no experience in traditional publishing, I really didn't know what to ask as much as I think I would now that I have so much more experience. But I do wish that I would have asked for some more verbal commitments on including Latinx creators in the book's publication process as much as possible, whether that's cover art and design, outsourcing to copy editors, or hiring sensitivity readers. I also wish I would have asked more questions about potential marketing and publicity support and what exactly that would look like. And I also kind of wish that I'd asked how they were planning to support and position my book in a way that would make up for, or even just address the lack of support historically for Latinx and by POC titles. Like, what are you going to do to make sure that this book succeeds as much as your books by white authors about white characters and then hold them to that? Can I also add um, one question that I did for myself, like in that particular book, find really important to ask them is I wanted some sort of like content warning in my book. Like even whenever I was querying to agents, there was like a, a content warning on my title page. And when my agent saw that, they were very much like, yeah, we're going to keep this because like this makes sense. We don't want readers to just come into some of these things without warning. And I am very much of the belief that like if a reader is 
not ready to read my book because of a particular circumstance, like that's probably okay. And if they're never ready to read that book, that's also okay. And I wanted my editor to know that. And so like, we definitely spent five to 10 minutes talking about a content warning and author's note, where it's gonna go, like placement and, and all that stuff. I, I wanted to be sure that we were both on the same page of like, this is going to be somewhere in there. I think you guys asked wonderful questions <laughs> in your calls and I didn't. Um, <laughs> so I won't go over like again, I, I, what you guys already said, but I feel like one thing to like, go into your call with is just like the feeling that you should feel like you can ask whatever you want like anything that comes across your mind i feel like you should feel confident asking those questions because there is no better time like if you're trying to make a decision or you're trying to figure out if this is the right editor or publisher for you like now is the time to ask it you can't go back you're you're on the verge of signing things that are really important so it's better to just ask the questions up front and maybe even like Johnny did prepare a list beforehand going in. Like, I wish I had done that. And I just sort of went into it and hoped for the best. But I think if I had come in with some notes, like about myself, about things I was excited about, things I had questions on, I think I would have felt more like we were on equal footing instead of me going in feeling like I'm just glad someone's talking to me which is not how you should go in. Like you should go in and you should feel like confident about your work and really like try and believe in yourself. And even if you don't feel those ways, again, fake it till you make it. Don't let them know that you feel that way. And I feel like that's really important, especially as marginalized authors. Like we have to basically go to bat for ourselves every step of the way. And I just feel like that's really, really important and get those questions asked and don't feel bad about it. And we're really going to bat for our entire communities when you're asking a publisher questions about how they're going to treat your work, about how much they value the work. It's a good indication of how they're going to treat and value your audience, which for us, I know is very personal. We're writing for a very particular community that we belong to. And so we have that group that we're advocating for when we're on these types of phone calls. And so even though it can make it even more intimidating because we're not just asking for these things on our own behalf, but we're asking for these things on behalf of our audience, it requires us to have a little bit more courage than other authors have to have because we do need to have these conversations and we need to make sure that our work is shepherded out into the world in the right way, in a way that respects not just the creator and the work itself, but also the audience that we're writing for. Very that. So when you were on the phone with editors, did any of them say anything that made it clear that they weren't the right fit? And what did your winning editor say that made you certain that they were the one? What made me certain that an editor was the one was they understood my manuscript and that they loved what I was trying to do as much and, and they saw the importance of what I was trying to do. Knowing that somebody cares and, and is enthusiastic about your work, about what you're trying to put out into the world uh, is the most important thing to me. I tend to remember the conversations that rub me the wrong way more than I remember the positing or affirming ones. So one editor that I spoke with on the phone, they basically wanted to change everything about the book. She liked the characters. She liked the fact that it took place at a restaurant. And I think she particularly liked that the characters were Latinx, but the changes that she was suggesting were just so massive to the point where I was like, 
you know, it sounds like maybe you'd really like to write a book <laughs> because you've basically rewritten mine. So why don't you go do that? <laughs> it was just a lot. And the changes that she was suggesting didn't make much sense to me. They were just these cool ideas that she'd had while reading that she wanted to see executed, but there was nothing about them that was addressing a specific problem in the story. And because I just could not wrap my head around her vision, it made the work feel a little bit tokenized and like they were only making an offer on it because they were trying to fill some kind of diversity quota. And so all of those things combined just let me know that it probably was not going to be a good fit. Personally speaking about my editor, like I felt really confident in her. I thought that like we would be a great match. I had like a thinking similar to how I was thinking about agents and choosing agents. Like she seemed very in tune to the story I wanted to tell and saw like not necessarily importance because I don't really like using that word for books, especially IPOC books, but she saw that it was something meaningful to me and how that could resonate like with my intended audience. There was trepidation about the publisher in general. Uh, to be blunt about it, like my publisher, Skyscape, is owned by Amazon. And I remember just being kind of like nervous about that because there were some things about being published by them that she made very clear, like may not happen, may happen, kind of just depending because of like relationships between businesses and important book organizations and stuff like that but also like highlighting what like what benefits there are of course because like she works with them so like a lot of thinking about like where I saw myself and my whole headspace around that and just trying to like balance those two and, and figure out what was the best course of action. So for me I also like Johnny went into it just trusting the process which is not really a thing I've ever said about anything but in this case I was just like okay this sounds great and I feel like I also got lucky with the editor that was given my book when we had our first call we just like clicked immediately and it felt like she really got it even though you know she's white and I'm Puerto Rican like identity wise, we didn't have a lot in common, but at the same time, it just felt like she read the book and totally understood what I was trying to do with it. And she understood how important those parts of it were that are like the main character was fat, that she was brown, that she had this like troublesome relationship with her mom. It was like all of these things that she got and walked me through like very patiently what she kind of saw as as some of the suggestions she would make. And she made it clear, like, I would never ask you to change anything about the identities of these characters. Like, you intentionally made them this way. And so, therefore, I'm not going to change anything about that. So she made it very clear that, like, the changes we would make would be to strengthen the story and to further illustrate the points I was trying to make and to not weaken anything that I already had there. Um, so that made me feel really confident and I really feel like I lucked out because she ended up being like so funny and the suggestions she made, it made the book so much better and I'm so happy with how it ended up coming out. But yeah, I feel like I just kind of got lucky there. <laughs> I didn't, I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> so what other factors played into your decision? Did you think about, you know, like advanced size, editor personality, those kinds of things? What was it that helped influence what you ultimately decided? One particular book, it was one of the things that really impressed me was how upfront they were about this is what we're going to do for, for you for promoting the book. We've already checked into covers. We've already, you know, they have already been thinking, they've already made a, 
a corporate uh, commitment to the book. And that, that was very important to me. It was uh, my agent, honestly. I remember I was texting them because like it was decision time and it looked like I was, you know, we were going to be going with Skyscape and just about like the nerves I had and whatever uncertainties I was having and just all those things. And so they were like, you know what? Okay, let me call you. Let's talk it out. And so like we had this whole phone call and just them like letting me walk them through what I'm thinking, but also letting me know the facts about this and not the end of the world, not just like the Amazon thing, but also thinking, oh, like if I'm not in a big five or I guess big four now, but like if I'm not in like one of those, what am I going to do? Like I'm never going to be one of those big authors. And it was just very much, you know what, Adam Silvera was in a, in a small press for his first two books before he got the big deal. Like everyone has to start somewhere and just because you don't start where maybe you envisioned, that's fine. It doesn't make you any like smaller or less important of an author. And it was just really about like instilling confidence that we can do this. This isn't inhibiting your growth or your journey or your career at all. It was a pretty good deal. And their confidence in this and just knowing that like they weren't going to lead me into something horrible, that my agent had really just been a real one since day one. And all of that really helped me say, okay, like, yeah, I'm in, this is, this is fine, this is good. We can work with it. I would say editor personality, the publisher's reputation and the advance size were probably the three factors that mattered most in my decision. My editor was currently working on some projects featuring by POC characters with by POC creators. And I was really happy about that and how she wanted to grow her list in that direction. And then Little Brown itself just has such a stellar reputation, which I can now confirm having been with them now into my second YA novel. And you know that piece is, it's just so important. It's important to have a publisher with a culture of professionalism based on what I've heard from authors at other houses, especially things I've been learning as a part of like our debut group is just that it's not, it's not any fun having to chase down people to get information. It's really stressful being kept in the dark. And I feel very comfortable contacting my editor and other people at the publisher, whether that's in the publicity department or school and library department, because I know they're not going to leave me in limbo. And they've also done so much to promote my debut, even though we're still three months out from release. So they started scheduling events for me back in November. So not only am I seeing the promises and commitments made coming to fruition, I just genuinely like the people that I'm interacting with. And I can tell they care a lot about my work and positioning it well and giving it the support it needs to thrive. But all that being said, I don't want to downplay how much money was a factor as well. I know lots of people have different opinions on what's better, you know, a smaller advance that has a higher chance of earning out or a bigger advance that allows you to quit your job and write full time. Both of those things have advantages and, and both have disadvantages and what ends up being right for one author based on their personal circumstances may not be what's best for another author with completely different circumstances. But I also try to think of it in the context of financial inequities that have plagued people of color for generations, we have so much ground to make up when it comes to building generational wealth. The pay gap for Latinx people, especially Latinas, is staggering. So if a publisher wants to write me a six-figure check, I'm taking it. I'm not thinking about strategy uh, because I don't have that luxury, right? 
So money did play a big role in my decision. And because I took the larger offer, that made it possible for me to quit teaching. And now I have several books that I'm going to be able to take out on sub this year that I wouldn't have had the time to write if I still had my full-time job. So for me, there's no guarantee that I'm going to earn out my advance, but getting a certain level of advance does require some commitment from the publisher in terms of marketing and publicity because they do want to try to earn their money back. So there's you know, a slight guarantee there that they're going to put more money towards that than not. And then it's also giving me the freedom to pursue this as a career, to sell more things and to hopefully build something for the long term and not just the short term. So for me, this was the offer that we got and my agent was like, this is a great offer and I think you should take it. And she had not led me astray up until that point. And I was like, again, whatever pretty much my agent told me to do, I was going to do because I felt like it was in her best interest to try and get the best offer because obviously she gets paid based on what I get paid. So beyond that, obviously how much money it was that played a factor into it. But it was also, she was really passionate about the publisher. So Holiday House has been in the business for a while. They had stopped publishing books for a bit and then were coming back and they wanted to come back and really dedicate themselves to creating new literature for young people and um, really expand their offerings for like by POC authors and readers and things like that. And so that was really meaningful to me to know that they were like, this was something they were committed to and that they wanted to do. And so that was really important. And I admired the, some of the children's books that had already come out uh, from them. So I feel like it was sort of like all the circumstances coming together where it was like, this is, this is perfect. Let's do this. I'm ready. <laughs> so have you gone out on sub again since selling your debut? And how was it different from when you went out on sub the first time? So I'm going to go first and I'm just going to say no. So then <laughs> we're just going to go <laughs> go around. <laughs> Johnny? Not yet, but we're working on it. And also like I envision it being a different process now because my current publisher does get first look rights, which means it's not like a, a multiple book contract. It's more like whatever I write next that falls under the young adult category, they get to see that manuscript first before, and they get to make an offer if they went first before anyone else does. Um, so that's going to be a different experience, but like I'm looking forward to how that goes. I have submitted four more books since selling my debut and they were all exclusive submissions. So we had already shown them an option book, which is what Johnny was just talking about. Um, they got the first look at something back in, gosh, maybe February of last year. And I think we'll probably talk about this on a future episode because it did get rejected. And so then I was sort of scrambling for another option book. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I was writing other things I was writing some picture books. I was writing a middle grade novel. And because I've had such a great experience at Little Brown and I really enjoy working with my editor, we gave her exclusive first looks on all of those projects. So she had the first look and the first opportunity to acquire them. So the process was much different from going out on sub the first time because now I was waiting on response from just one person instead of like 20. However, this also made the process much slower than the first time because 
there wasn't this sense of urgency because other people were reading the manuscript at the same time. So basically we were just waiting to see when she could fit it in and when she could kind of move it up the chain of command. So there were some aspects of the process that were a little bit more stressful than the first time, but then other parts that were definitely less stressful. And luckily, you know, besides the book I mentioned that got rejected, all of these other four have been acquired. They just haven't been announced yet. I said a little bit earlier, my very first submission uh, after two rounds, we, we took it off the market and I'm still working on that. The next one was very quick. Okay, so last question. What advice do you have for writers getting ready to go out on sub? And is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? I think don't look at your phone and don't look at your emails. That would be the thing. Just don't even think about it. Just concentrate on what you're working on. I would say that your agent is your greatest resource in this whole process, especially that one, um, as it pertains to like publishers, even from start to finish, and to not be afraid to be as involved or away from submissions and all of that as you need to be whatever is best for your own mental health. And I think, I think Lakin may have mentioned this, but also like as BIPOC, as QT BIPOC creators, like we really have to defend ourselves, not only for ourselves, but for whomever's coming after us. A lot of us are kind of building the foundation of Chicana literature, Puerto Rican literature and YA, like Cuban literature and YA. Like this isn't something that has a huge catalog of things. Like we're, we're the building blocks. And so what, our defense of ourselves and who we are and our identities is so important to making sure that other people like us get the same opportunity. I like that. We're the building blocks. But it also means that we carry a lot of weight, <laughs> right? And a lot of meaning behind all of these decisions that we're making. I would say if you're getting ready to go out on sub, as soon as you can shift your mindset from I'm going to sell this book to I'm going to build a career, the better. It'll help you keep some perspective when those rejections start rolling in or when everything feels like it's moving at a snail's pace. All of that can make it seem like you have no control and like you're just stuck in this limbo where your mind is racing and you're checking your email 10 times a day. But that's not entirely true. The truth is you have control over the most important component, which is the work. So I would make a schedule for drafting something new and then don't just set a deadline for when you'd like to finish the next book, but go ahead and set a deadline for when you'd like to take it out on sub. It'll remind you that there will be another opportunity to sell something in the future, even if this first book doesn't quite get there. And it will help you remember that, you know, there's a bigger picture and the fact that you are playing the long game and building something for the future, not just something in the short term. I couldn't agree more. So I would say go into this doing a little bit of research so you're familiar with things, but not so much that you get caught up in all of the details and like scare yourself out of doing it, you know, <laughs> because you don't want to get so stuck in like the minutia of it that you're just afraid to even try. Um, so being a little familiar, but trusting the people that work for you to do their job, I feel like is, is really important. And then I would also say, you know, trust your gut. So if something doesn't feel right or you have a strong opinion on something, don't be afraid to voice that, especially like we've been saying as BIPOC creators, like we have like this extra added responsibility on us 
to sometimes have those difficult conversations with people um, that maybe other authors wouldn't have to think about, but we do. <laughs> so just trust yourself, trust your team and lean on them and get started on your next project. Like as soon as you're able to, you know, remember that you're doing this because you love writing. And if you can just like keep coming back to that, like I think it, it just is so meaningful and it'll help propel you forward so you don't get stuck in, oh, did I make this list or that list? It doesn't matter. You don't have control over those things. All you can really control is what you write and what you put out there. So focus on that and hopefully the rest will come. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to second what everyone has said. I love the idea that that Lakin put out that you're working on your career. And that's the most important thing. And also, Crystal, that you know, what you can control is your work. And if you continue to work, you have something to look forward to. There's something there in the future for you, regardless of what is happening right now, whether you're getting offers, whether you're getting on those lists, whether you're getting rejections. If you're looking forward to something, then that's the only thing that you that you do have control over. So yeah, those were great answers. And if we're being honest, there will be lots of people and lots of times when you're just being tokenized and people are making an offer on your book or they're wanting to work with you simply because you fill a part of the market that they don't necessarily care that much about, but they're trying to appeal to in some way. And I think the greatest form of resistance is being adamant about the fact that you are not just going to put out one book. You're going to build an entire career. You're going to be in this career for the long term, making book after book after book for this community that has not been well served in the past. And we owe the world, right? Like, let's do this. We owe our readers. <laughs> so thank you all so much for chatting today. Um, and this was great. And hopefully if you're listening, you learned a thing or two. So if you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for the Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates, as well as other Musa news such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening. Bye!